Greetings, and welcome to the show. This is Wrong Place, Right Crime, and I'm your host, Frank Zafiro, and we are back for season three. During the off-season, I did a little bit of a listener poll to help decide the best way to proceed as far as format is concerned, and you have spoken. So the format for Wrong Place, Right Crime will continue essentially unchanged. There will be a feature episode just about every month that'll be a longer show with a deeper dive, uh, about an hour long or a little less. Uh, And then on the other weeks, uh, most of them anyway, there will be an open and shut episode. Uh, That'll be between 10 and 15 minutes long, and you'll get a chance in those episodes to learn a little bit about the particular guest uh, author and uh, some of his or her work, uh, particularly whatever the newest release is. So that was the feedback, and I asked for it, and I got it, and now I'm going to follow it. I am uh, coming at you from an atypically rainy day here in Central Oregon. This is the high desert area, and we usually don't get uh, very much rain, but it's been unseasonably wet here. I don't know how it is in uh, your part of the world, but uh, that's what's going on in mine. So I'm really excited to be back here for Season 3. I'm also excited that uh, Season 3 is once again sponsored by Down and Out Books. Uh, Down and Out Books, as you probably know, is an up-and-coming publisher, a mid-sized publisher out of Florida that uh, publishes gritty, edgy crime fiction, uh, some of it a little bit darker, but not all of it. If you want to learn more about Down and Out Books, you can go to their website, downandoutbooks.com. That's downandoutbooks, all spelled out, dot com, Down and Out Books. Take the journey with us. As the season progresses, uh, next month you'll hear from Eric Campbell, the chief editor and founder of Down and Out Books, uh, in that spot. Uh, and he'll be highlighting some of the titles that are coming out in that particular month. This episode, I'm happy to welcome Trey R. Barker. First met uh, Trey down at uh, BoucherCon last year in Florida. Uh, Really hit it off with him. Uh, We had a lot in common, uh, not the least of which was both having a background in uh, law enforcement. Great guy, interesting life, uh, had a great time talking to him, and uh, we're going to get to that. Uh, Well, hey, why don't we just get to that right now? Well, hey, Trey, welcome to the show. Thank you, Frank. I appreciate you having me. Well, we have a lot of ground to cover because you have lived an interesting life. And uh, I guess at the risk of being cliche, let's let's start at the beginning. You grew up in West Texas. I did in Midland, Texas. You know, I just the reason I bring it up is because you don't live in Texas now. You spent time in Denver and now you live in uh, northern Illinois. So uh, that's that's a bit of a journey. You know, a lot of people grow up in in or around the same town they were born in. And you are, you know, north to south, a complete country away anyway. Well, in between Texas and Illinois was 10 years in Denver. Right, right, right. So in, in Texas, you you went to college there. Texas Tech. And your yep. degree? Broadcast journalism, believe it or not. Uh, I do believe it. Uh, do you? Did you use that? Did you work in the field? I did a little bit. I worked in radio in West Texas. I also worked in uh, newspapers in West Texas. And then I did a bit of freelance magazine while I was in Denver. What kind of magazine was that? A little bit of everything. Uh, some outdoor articles, some music articles. I uh, did some work for bellydance.com, believe it or not. Some articles about uh, 
Arabic music and how it's different from Western music. So you are a bit of a musician then? I am a bit of a musician. Your bio and, says you play the drums. Is that uh, is that yep. the extent of it, or, or do you branch out to other instruments as well? Um, I know just enough guitar to think I know something, but not <laughs> enough to actually know something. I can play a wee bit of piano, and I once attempted to play a saxophone, but stupidly, I did it when I had a head cold, and about blew my brains out, and I haven't touched it since. <laughs> Death by saxophone sounds. That's like, right. Sounds like a musical cozy. Just saying, there's a whole new series there. <laughs> so mostly drums then. Uh, mostly your, drums, yeah. Do you, do you play a particular style, like you know, your jazz, rock and roll, something like that? I prefer rock sometimes progressive rock sometimes blues based rock but i have played in my life a little bit of everything i've been in jazz bands and punk bands and speed metal bands and uh marching bands and about the only thing i haven't played i i think would be in a you know a polish oompa band i haven't done that <laughs> there's some there's some drums in that <laughs> yeah there are so uh that makes me curious because you know they always say write what you know and and clearly with your current profession which we'll get to in a bit you do write what you know uh uh in that respect but uh why no musical mystery i mean it sounds like you I mean, you've been in bands i mean that's a, a a pretty unique experience right uh has it ever occurred to you or, or have you ever been tempted to write something with that kind of a backdrop you know I have not, and I'm not really sure why that is. All of the books, all of the books have music as part of the context. I tend to get two characters through whatever music it is they listen to. And in fact, when I was doing the Bearfield novels, each each one of those three books had a particular artist that informed me while I was writing that book. Uh, but I've never, I've never thought about a musician as lead or co-lead i've never thought about a band or the music industry as a context i'm not sure why it's just never it's never been a thing me my guitar player our bass player pretty much were the same but we had kind of a revolving cast of other guitarists and singers and we had one guitarist who was just stunningly good could play dire straits note for note a brilliant player but rock and roll didn't fit in with his particular faith journey so he'd play a song and then feel guilty for a few minutes and then play a song and then feel guilty for a few minutes. So that was sort of odd. Uh, we had a <laughs> self-flagellating lead singer in a rock and roll band. <laughs> we had a, a singer for a while, a guy named Abe, who was, uh, he was 6'6", if he was a foot, and had long flowing black hair uh, and an MIA, MIA bracelet on his wrist. He'd been a member of 82nd Airborne. And as soon as he finished his service, he, of course, started smoking pot and singing rock and growing his hair and all the things he couldn't do. So he was fun to watch. So each each person I've been in a band with in all my bands has been not so much the cliche as almost the anti-cliche. Oh, really? What what are the cliches, would you say? Like the drummer is what kind of person? The bassist is what kind of person? Uh, drummer and bassist usually taken together are sort of the stoner heartbeats of, of any band. And, you know, if you're talking about a rock and roll band, they're the ones who are smoking weed before the show, manage to get through the entire show with nary a mistake, but can't really remember where the next show is. <laughs> you know? So my guitar player, a guy named Brian Hicks, still a 
one of my closest friends to this day, he, he wasn't like your standard sort of uh, lead guitar player. The man, I love him to death, but he had no rhythm at all. Couldn't play his way out of a rhythm paper bag to save his life. But his leads were always amazing. Wow. So uh, you, you were talking about the uh, Bearfield novels. Uh, mm-hmm. And if, if I get this correct, these, the, the Bearfield refers to a location. Yes. And because they're all, all three of them have different protagonists, at least uh, as far as I can tell. They do. There's a, a super cheap uh, gimmick that I used to tie them all together. Bearfield is the darker side of Midland where I grew up. And in book one, it, the, the first book, you can read them out of order. It doesn't matter. They don't really rely on each other. But in the first book, 2000 Miles to Open Road, there's a scene in the middle that happens in a, a little tiny town called Valentine, Texas, which is a real town. And the scene happens and the book moves on and it's fine. Well, in the next book, Exit Blood, the middle scene from 2000 Miles because becomes the first chapter of Exit Blood, but we see it through different eyes, different characters' eyes. Mm-hmm. So it's the same exact happening, but now you find out a lot more about what was really going on. And then a middle scene in Exit Blood is the first scene in Death Is Not Forever. A middle scene in Death Is Not Forever, assuming I ever write the next book, will be the first scene in the next book, which That's... I think is is going to be titled When the Bullet Hits the Bone, because I love that song. <laughs> I don't think that's a cheap tactic at all. I think that's kind of a neat way to link them together, especially when they're not linked together by, you know, by, you know, recurring characters or, or something like that. Well, I needed something. I like, I like writing in West Texas and I wanted something that kept me there, but I didn't really want the same characters. And that was, that was what I came up with. So you said that some music inspired each, uh, of the books in terms of you getting to know the characters. So, uh, the first one, uh, 2000 miles to, uh, 2000 miles of open road, right? 2000 miles to open road, to open road, which, which yeah. artist was that, or which song was that, that, uh, there's a tiny little bit of Johnny cash. Uh, but mostly that book was Joe Ely. Oh, who's yeah. a Texas singer songwriter. Mm-hmm. So how about exit blood, exit blood was all Johnny cash. Now, you don't necessarily find references to that music, but that was what was in my head and the kind of mm-hmm. context for it. So Exit Blood was Johnny Cash, and uh, Death Is Not Forever was actually Merle Haggard. So these are like soundtracks that only you hear. Right, right. There may be references. Um, there may not be references. Usually the references are either wildly blatant, like there's a reference in 2000 Miles where the character specifically thinks about, um, you know, shot a man in Reno just to watch him die. He specifically thinks about that moment. Mm -hmm. Um, But normally the references are a stolen lyric slightly rewritten. So if you know the song, I'm going to wink at you and you're going to get it. And if you don't know the song, that's fine. You can, you're not missing anything. And it still makes sense. And it still makes sense. But mostly it's to put my head in a certain place. If you were going to sum up the feel of all three of these uh, books, because they are related in tone and, and they are. style for sure, um, how, would you, how would you sum them up? They're not really whodunits. 
because in a weird way, it sort of doesn't matter who did the thing. It, the aftermath is what's going on. Not really noir. I, you know, I don't even, I'm not even sure what I would call them. Probably the closest would be just a, you know, caper novels. But in one of the books, there's not, in two of the books, there's not even really a caper to, to deal with. They read like post-caper novels, like uh, the, whatever the caper is, a lot of times it's already happened and this is the yeah. fallout, like caper fallout novel or, or something. I would uh, agree with that. Absolutely. The The main thing in Death is Not Forever um, happened years and years earlier to one of the characters. And what we're seeing is something unrelated to that popping up and sort of driving his uh, mental fallout from the thing that happened years earlier. So yeah, I, I think post caper, I think that's well, the what death is not forever. Is that the one where the guy gets out of prison? Uh, no. Being, okay. I mixed them up. Yeah. That's death is not forever is the judge who has been. Oh, disbarred. Jeremiah Bean. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, who now mediates disputes between bad guys. Ah, uh, yeah. Yeah. That's a cool idea. I, I think it's funny. And I've well, always been a fan of Judge Roy Bean. So. I was going to say, there's definitely an homage there. <laughs> yeah. You, you got a really good uh, blurb for Exit Blood from a pretty big name. Craig Johnson, the guy that writes Longmire. How'd you score I don't know that? who the hell you're talking about. I've never heard of Craig Johnson. You know? <laughs> <laughs> uh, he probably sought you out and asked if he could blurb it, huh? <laughs> exactly. Perfect. Man, you're good for my ego. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that happen? Craig and I have been friends for a, a great number of years. He and I got to know each other, me and him and Judy, his wife, at uh, a convention that was used to be held in Omaha every year, a thing called Mayhem in the Midlands. Fairly small, and so you had a chance to get cozy with all the big guests. And way back in, I can't remember what year Cold Dish came out, is Craig's first book, but his first book and my first book, 2000 Miles, came out the same year. And so we were both there, you know, flogging readers, trying desperately to get them to buy it. And since then, only one of us has made the New York Times bestseller list. So guess who's better at flogging? <laughs> so we, I think we were on a panel together that was, you know, coppers who write books now or something. And we got to know each other that way. And we hit it off fairly, fairly quickly. And we've been friends ever since. He read 2,000 Miles or Judy read 2,000 Miles or something. And uh, he wanted to know what the next one was. And I sent it to him and, you know, got a blurb. Well, conferences tend to really spark those opportunities, I've noticed. They do. They absolutely do. You know, there's some writers, and Craig even anymore doesn't like to go to conferences particularly often. But there's some writers who just don't go at all. And while I can understand their logic, I am a social butterfly or a social moth anyway. <laughs> and I like spending time with other writers. I like hearing what their troubles and travails are. I like drinking whiskey with them and, you know, either toasting the new contract or bemoaning the fact that somebody else got the new contract. So conferences to me are good ways to charge up my batteries, find new books, find people I've, I hadn't heard of or had heard of, but didn't know, or had read a little bit of, but such as in your case, you know, I mean, that's how we met. And uh, uh, Michael Bracken, you know, I, I had corresponded with him a little bit, but we met each other at, at the same conference you and I did. And, you know, 
got to be quite quite good friends. You and I, uh, uh, Libby Hellman, who a fabulous blurb for the Unknowing, the new novel. Sean Doolittle, same thing. Met him through Omaha, the Mayhem in the Midlands one. I like conferences. I think they're they they work for me. Well, uh, you we'll circle back around to some of your books at, uh, in a second, but as long as we're talking conferences and how sh- stuff happens there, that's that's how uh, Guns and Tacos came into being, right? <laughs> Never would have happened that's right. if you weren't at that conference. That's right. Uh, Michael Bracken and I and our respective wives all went to lunch together, and Michael <laughs> Michael remembers the birth of this thing, the gestation of this thing, much more differently than I do. Um, my version seems to have more car chases and shootouts and F-bombs than his version does. I'm not really sure how that happened, but because we were both at the same table. <laughs> somebody and, who has an act of imagination. Somebody, <laughs> and you're supposed to be the journalist, so why isn't it you that has the more grounded version? Exactly. <laughs> That's exactly right. So we, I don't even remember who it was who who said something about tacos but we were talking about tacos and then guns came up and then somebody mentioned guns and tacos and somebody else mentioned god that'd be a hilarious title and it just kind of took off from there and then it was either that night or the next day that we mentioned it to you and you were like oh my god this is the dumbest fucking thing i've ever heard in my life keep me out of this bullshit (laughs) once again once again not the journalistic approach happening here (laughs) <laughs> I consider myself more of a creative writer than a yeah, clearly <laughs> re- report reportorial type writer. So you it was it was fun. We, Enquirer. There you go. Always more fun to read than the New York Times. Trust me. Uh-huh. We talked to a couple of people, and everybody seemed to to dig the idea. Okay, so we we put that together. The first season is up. In fact, the newest edition, and I can't remember. It might be Michael's. Uh, the newest novel, short novel in that series, just went live a couple of days ago. So, uh, yeah, that uh, we're, we're recording in early September, and uh, that was episode three, and actually that was mine. Uh, yours? Okay. Uh, yeah, a, a Euro and a Glock. Uh, yeah. Michael's was uh, August 1st, three brisket tacos and a Sig Sauer. Okay, and and I'm Gary actually, started it. Yeah, Gary did with Tacos de Cazuela con Smith & Wesson. Okay, either you have a brilliant memory or you've got the notes in front of you and you're making oh, I'm you feel staring, like a I'm, I'm staring at it right now. Yeah. While, you, while you were making up lies, I was clicking on the, the link. Not uh, not lies, more creative truths is how I prefer to think of it. When you were modifying the truth, I was looking it up. Um, I am nestled between you and Michael, though, because yours, uh, three chalupas, rice, soda, and a Kimber 45 is episode four and that'll drop October 1st. Uh, so a couple of weeks after this episode airs. Cool. That was a, a really fun project. The The premise is, is so open, you know, you can do anything with it, which you'll see in the second season, which we're already collecting novels for short novels. I don't want to scare your listeners about 15,000. Okay. The, the premise, you know, a guy buys a gun from a taco truck and then you have to use the gun in a crime. That's, that's pretty broad based. You can do anything with that. And uh, that's part of what I've enjoyed about it for the second season. Michael and I actually wrote a novella together and uh, the tentative title. Yeah, maybe I shouldn't give this out. Okay. So I'm going to give you something nobody else has yet. How's that for an exclusive an exclusive uh, jalapeno poppers and a flare gun. 
So uh, obviously heat uh, is the working metaphor in this yeah, story. For sure. <laughs> for sure. So it's it was fun writing with with Michael. We we had, you know, here's the track, here's what we're gonna do, broad strokes outlined already. And of course, it's like a battle plan. Your initial outline survives until the first word is actually written, and then it goes out the damn window. Mm-hmm. You know. And so Michael and I ended up miles away from where we started. Uh, we ended up doing a sort of a vague mob story. Neither one of us is really into mob stories, but that's that's the story that popped out. You know. So well, the important part is you got there together. I mean, it's fine to go off script if you're both okay with it. It's frustrating if you work with someone and, and they're going off script and you, you know, you're not, and you know, you guys are going in different directions or whatever. That's obviously that becomes unsatisfying. I'm sure. Yep. And I've been down that road before once or I, twice. I, I've been fortunate. Actually. I haven't, uh, all of the people I've collaborated with, I've, I've been very, very fortunate with, and it, it's always worked out really, really well. But you know, every time, I've, I've tried, tried it with someone new, you you know, that possibility always awaits because, you know, you never know what it's like to write with somebody till you write with them, you know? Sure. You're exactly right. Uh, we'll get back to uh, our interview with Trey Barker in just a moment. I told you he's an interesting guy, uh, but uh, this is the time in the show where in the past couple of seasons, uh, we turned it over to the experts and by experts I mean experts in the field of what you should be reading what books are good uh, and that trend is going to continue for season three you're going to hear from all kinds of people making recommendations on what you might enjoy reading as this is the season premiere uh, I don't have a lot of those stocked up yet and so I did whatever a self-respecting podcaster would do I turned to my wife and asked her what she thinks you should read. And so uh, the first recommendation uh, of the season and of this episode comes from Christy Scalise. Hello, wrong place, right crime listeners. This is Christy Scalise, and I am here uh, to do a book recommendation for you guys. And the book I recommend is called She Rides Shotgun by Jordan Harper. Uh, I read it actually a little while ago, but it's really stuck with me. It's one of the best books that I've read, and I just discovered it's also going to be made into a movie. I would not watch the movie first. I would read the book. Um, It's a really interesting book because uh, the main characters are a little girl who's 11 uh, who did not know her father until he just comes to pick her up at school one day out of the blue. And um, he is somebody who was recently out of prison, so he's not one of the best guys ever. One of my favorite parts about it was there's also another character, sort of, and it's Polly's teddy bear. And she has him with her, and he really does almost become a character in himself. Uh, They build a very uh, interesting relationship, sort of a relationship she never had with her dad. um, But it's, you know, built around this whole kind of world of crime and violence. And so um, I suggest you try it out. It's one of the best books that um, I've read, and I think it's really great. I hope you like it. Thanks for listening to my suggestion. Bye. She's right uh, about what a great book that was. Tremendous book, She Read Shotgun. 
I'd like to recommend a couple to you as well before we get back to Trey. Uh, but a couple of books I read over the summer that I can definitely recommend to you. Uh, one is Lori Raider Day's Under a Dark Sky. It was uh, really good. Uh, it's told from a, a female protagonist point of view. And what I liked about it uh, was that you really suspected everybody, including a potentially unreliable narrator, very deep into the novel, Under a Dark Sky by Laurie Raider Day. Uh, and the other one that I finally finished because I owned the copy, in fact, it was signed by the author, Jim Ziskin, but it kept getting pushed to the side when library books would come available that I had to return in, in, uh, in a short period of time. And so I, I read his book, uh, Cast the First Stone. This was really well written. Uh, and if you like historical novels, uh, this is set in the early 1960s. It's uh, narrated in the first person uh, by the protagonist, uh, who is a younger female uh, reporter in that time period. And not only is Jim's writing really good and very enjoyable on a literary level, but the way that he explores the differences between the early 1960s and now through the eyes of Ellie Stone were very was very interesting and i think if you if you like historical fiction at all you would dig this so those are the recommendations for this month if you have a recommendation all you gotta do is fire me about a 30 or 60 second uh, recording of you identifying yourself and the book you're recommending and why you think it is great and uh, i'll put you on the show just email it to me at franksafaro at msn.com or hit me up on uh, Facebook or Twitter and we'll get connected. Uh, 30 to 60 seconds on whatever book you think is worth reading. Could be a classic, could be old, could be new, could be obscure. Just keep it at least tangentially related to the crime fiction field. And now, let's get back to our interview with Trey Barker. Um, I've, I've written, I've published upwards of 200 short stories. And... The voice doesn't matter to me. If some weird voice pops into my head, it doesn't matter to me at all. It might be a woman. It might be a black guy. It might be the story for The Eyes of Texas, which Michael edited the the collection anthology of P.I. stories for Bouchercon in Dallas this year. That character is autistic. You know, hmm. just whatever might be interesting is what I jump on. I have to tell you, I'm jealous that you uh, are in that anthology. I really wanted to write a story for that, and I had one in mind, and it just, uh, I had other things that had deadlines ahead of it, so I just ended up not getting done in time. So I'm jealous that you're in it, and I'm, I'm glad you are. Uh, I'm looking forward to seeing it. Uh, you you mentioned, you know, You'll like voices. that story. It's the, uh, the autistic it's one? Got a, it's, yeah, it's got a PI, but it's mm -hmm. got some some cops that I think you might enjoy. I'll look forward to it. And it's got some uh, bullshit that I know you'll enjoy because you've been on those calls. That's an interesting thing. That's one of the reasons I think you and I hit it off is we had some common ground right off the bat. Having absolutely worked, worked in law enforcement, there's a, there's a shorthand in every career field and in every, you know, there's, there's jargon and shorthand and, and definitely there is in, in, in police work all over. And, and I'm not talking about, we both know what 10, four copy means, you know, it's, right. more, it's more it's more about understanding it's experiential right you understand like oh i was talking to this guy you know he's one of these guys who and you give like a three yep. word description and the other person knows immediately what you're talking about yeah they know all of they know the context they know the background they know everything mm -hmm. because yep. they've been on that call 10 times 100 times yep. as, as well 
uh, and and the only really the only difference is obviously from our perspectives. I, well, I guess region you're midwest i was pacific northwest but I, I i don't think that's nearly as different as midwest or pacific northwest and east coast or south i think there's a bigger i would uh, agree experiential difference but uh but the yep. biggest difference was i was already retired when we met and you're still working active and that's a challenge i mean that's a challenge i remember uh, what are some of the challenges that you encounter with balancing being an active active deputy you're actually your sergeant now um and being a, a mystery writer well my biggest line of demarcation is is it still an active case is it not an active case that's that's the basic um and if i adhere to that then generally i do okay but i actually whereas you were an officer and then a writer i actually have been writing since i was in high school so i was a writer long and a published writer long before i got to law enforcement mm-hmm. um so when i <laughs> the first gig i had in law enforcement was as a jailer and i can remember going to jailer school down in peoria about an hour south of here and sending out emails to my list of friends probably 20 or 25 people once a week about what we had done that week in jailer school. So it started way back at the beginning. And I was always honest with my administration. This is what I, well, let me back up a little bit. I actually worked for the local newspaper for about 18 months before I got hired on at the sheriff's office. And it was a, I was writing about a, an old open, possibly homicide case from the seventies. I was writing about that for the newspaper when the sheriff decided I had some sort of aptitude and hired me on at the sheriff's office. And so all of a sudden I had a pension for the first time in my life. So that was cool. And all of my command staff, five or six of them, they all knew from the absolute very beginning that I wrote, that I blogged, that this stuff was going to come out in the stories. That's the way it was. And they just asked two simple things. One, don't specifically mention the Bureau County Sheriff's office. Just, you know, you can say sheriff's office, but don't mention us specifically. And I'm fine with that. And two, make sure it's a case that's already been taken care of. It's already disposed of, whatever that means. Adjudicated, dropped, whatever. And those have been the two guiding principles. The biggest thing I'm dealing with right now, believe it or not, is, and this is going to sound awful. Frank, you'll know exactly what I mean. Your listeners may not. The biggest thing I'm dealing with right now is just boredom, right? Not that I'm bored being a police officer, not by any stretch, but what was new and exciting and a giant adrenaline rush 15 years ago mm-hmm. is just another call now. Mm-hmm. You know, I can remember when I first started in one of our small towns, there was a, a restaurant that had been closed down and it was being used for concerts. And they would have uh, metal concerts and they had a couple of... Uh, Mexican music concerts and stuff like that. And one night early on, when I hadn't been on the road very long, there was basically a riot at that place. And I can remember racing to that call, almost throwing up. I was terrified. I had no idea what was going to happen. I had a call in one of my other small towns just two nights ago, 15 people on a porch and in the street, all beating the hell out of each other. And I got there quick, but... I'm not even sure my adrenaline level went up. I'm just like, mm-hmm. okay, another fight. Yeah. And yeah. so that's the hard thing for me to deal with because if I don't find it particularly interesting, 
I may not write about it. And if I do write about it, how am I going to make it interesting for the reader? Mm-hmm. If that makes sense. That absolutely makes sense. It, and yeah. it makes sense both as a, as law enforcement and as a writer. It's funny people, you know, they get on the job at, uh, early on young cops and, you know, there's a fight call, two guys fighting outside a bar or whatever. And man, they go screaming down there and they're so excited. Tell <laughs> some old salt grabs onto him and says, Hey, you're driving over your head. You're going to crash. You're going to hurt somebody. Slow down. Don't worry about it. Maybe they'll be done fighting when you get yep. there. Or they'll be tired out and they'll be easier <laughs> to fight with. I mean, you, you, FTOs tell their recruits that from New York to California, from yep. Washington to Florida. I mean, it's because it's true. Absolutely. And that's. I think that's a very, you hit on a very common thing, I think, in law enforcement. I was going to say, I think that's also how officers end up as cynical and jaded as they do after 15, 20, 25 years. Mm-hmm. You know, it's the same thing over and over and over. And I'm going to guess with your agency, it was the same as with mine. 80% of our bullshit comes from 20% of our idiots. Mm-hmm. It can lead to, unfortunately, it can be dangerous too, though, because absolutely the same call and it's not, you know, it's just bullshit for, for a year. And then you go to the call and it's not, and you've gotten a little bit, uh, just a little bit lax because of it, which is yep. perfectly normal. Uh, it's hard to find that middle ground where you're not like so amped up that you burn out, but you're not so laid back and, and that you, you know, that you're in danger, that you're an officer safety issue. It's a, yep. there's actually a smaller window there than I think people realize. I think that's true. I do. Uh, we, we were talking earlier about you, you said that as writers, we need to change things up and, and everything. And, and you mentioned all the short stories you wrote, but you wrote another series as well. In addition to the Bearfield series, uh, the, the Jace Salome, did I say that right? You did. Um, and that's a female lead. So I guess first question would be just what's, what's the Jace Salome series about? And then maybe you could talk a little about what it, you know, what it's like, uh, or if it is even any different writing, uh, a female lead. The series started years ago. Uh, I met a writer out of Chicago. We were at a signing together and he had a series that had a gimmicky sort of a name and it was fine. I actually thought the writing was shit worthless, but it was fine. Told a fun <laughs> story and that's okay. Cool. I'm, I'm good with that. And he talked a lot about doing market research and surveying exactly what was going on and who bought most books and what their tastes were and all of this stuff, and that he decided to make his lead uh, female. And I didn't do all that. I just had a female voice in my head. You know, when I when I conjured up the Jay Salome books, she just came to me as a female. That's the way. That's the way stories work with me. The mm-hmm. character is black. The character is autistic, like we talked about earlier. The character is female. The character is whatever. It just comes to me, and I figured out from there. Now the rest of Jay's was a just a calculated uh, move on my part. I I love all kinds of books, but the thing that I always notice is when you pick up a book, the character is already who they are. They're already a captain in the violent crimes unit in CPD. They're already a crime scene investigator with Seattle PD. They're already whatever they are. And because I came to law enforcement so late in my life, I was 36 before I started. I think I was much more aware of the journey step-by-step than people who start when they're 21, 22, because for them it's all about adrenaline and, you know, the big badge and all that. So I decided to make Jace at the very beginning of her career, 
the books would go as long as they could go and we would watch her move from the jail to the road to whatever was next and in fact the first jace book slow bleed opens on her first night on duty solo so she's she's done her academy bit she's done her fto this is her first solo shift and there's a death in the jail and it turns out she could have done something about it but sort of couldn't have and or she thinks she could have done something about it anyway um and we start from there and uh, there have been three books in that series so far. They're all set in the jail while she gets a little more confidence and a little more ability to deal with people. Frank, I don't know if you ever worked in a jail. I did not. It was a very interesting experience, especially for an old guy. Again, I was 36 and much more a talker than a fighter. And in a jail, you know you're never, ever going to lose the war, although you might lose a battle. The doors are locked. The bad guys aren't getting out. They're not going to terrorize anybody else. But you may end up in a fight with two or three people, and you have to fight them by yourself or protect yourself until your backup can get there. Ultimately, your backup's going to get there. You're going to win the war, but you might not win that battle. So it was a matter of learning how to deal with people verbally and body language and all that without actually having to throw a punch. That's what I wanted to do with Jace. That's what Jace is kind of in the middle of. At the beginning, she has no idea what to do, and she's learning a little bit you know, with each book. The third book, When the Lonesome Dog Barks, her sidekick in the jail has already been promoted to the road, so she's gone at the academy. Jace is on her own. She's got to figure this thing out all by herself. So mm-hmm. that's, the, that's what I'm doing with that series. We were, we were talking off air, and you mentioned that you owned a bookstore. Where was that that you owned a bookstore? That was in Princeton, Illinois. What kind of store was it? A general bookstore? Just, or? just a general bookstore, yeah. Uh-huh. It did pretty well for a few years. It was it was an interesting, eye-opening experience in terms of how marketing is done and how publishers deal with the retail end of things as opposed to the writer end of things. Did you deal with a lot of authors? I did. When, uh, when we opened, the grand opening was a week's worth of readings. Mm-hmm. Um, and it would start at about noon and go until 10 or 10 30 at night. And I had, I got a ton of authors in for that. Mostly out of Chicago. We're only a couple hours from Chicago, but some quad cities writers, some Peoria writers it was great fun. Did you learn any lessons for your own bookstore appearances as a result of seeing all these other people perform? You know, I did. One of the, the first thing that kind of got to me that the first thing I noticed was that most of the writers came in with, their spouses, boyfriends, kids, significant others, whoever. And those people were always pressed into service to hand out candy or bookmarks or pens or whatever the little tchotchke of the day was. And I saw this happening and I watched it not from the point of view of the writer who's trying to read their new book, but from just a guy leaning over against the wall and the complete total indifference on most audience members' faces to those little tchotchkes was quite eye-opening because at the time I was all about postcards and bookmarks. And Mm -hmm. if I'd been writing a a whiskey based series, I would have had, you know, little, the little miniatures, you know, handed those out. Shot glasses or something. Yeah. Something. Um, But most of the people who got that stuff, other than when it was chocolate that was handed out, um, (laughs) most of the people just looked bored and either left it on the table or the floor or tossed it in their purse and I don't think probably ever looked at it again. So that, that gave me a big, don't do this. 
-hmm. in terms of the performances, I saw a lot of writers who worked really hard to be whatever their chosen facade was going to be. And it always came across as just not believable. Not genuine. Yeah. So the big lesson there, I've, I've also, I've known Joe Lansdale for a bunch of years and he and I have talked about this. And I don't know if you've ever seen, gone to a Joe Lansdale reading. You should, if you ever have the chance. He's just an old East Texas boy with an East Texas lilt who will read. And if he thinks of a joke that's not in the book, he's going to stop the book and tell you the joke. You know, <laughs> he's very much himself. And that was what I learned from watching all of these writers come in. And I thought, you know, that's that's the better way to go. And me, I'm kind of a geek and my jokes don't always work. And I have weird references to really obscure 70s metal and stuff. But that's me. So I try to just be me. I try not to have Trey the person and Trey R. Barker the writer. You know, right. that was probably the biggest lesson from dealing with other authors. That's probably the most important lesson I'm thinking that anybody could could learn because people these days really despise artifice. Yes. But uh, I wanted to hit on your newest one that's coming out here, I believe, in October this month. I believe next so. Month, rather. Yep. Uh, it's called The Unknowing. The Unknowing. Yes, sir. What's it about? It is a uh, it's set in rural Illinois rather than West Texas, like almost all of my other novels. So that's a difference. But the different landscape and the different population base and different contexts generally give me an opportunity to do something different. I have a detective in a small sheriff's office who gets a call one day about a found body. And it turns out there's nothing but bones left. Turns out that it's a uh, 17-year-old girl who's been missing for a while. And so he's off to the races trying to figure out who she is and who killed her and, and solve that mystery. But at the same time, he's dealing with his own demons because his first case as a police officer had been a missing girl of roughly the same age. And now 10 years down the road, he still has never found that original girl. And so that eats at him every single day. And throughout this book, while he's working on the current case, he's also still driving around looking for this girl in the case that's 10 years old. Mm -hmm. And that drives much of what, what happens in this book. It drives him to the point where he believes absolutely that had his command staff not interfered with his original case, he could have solved it. And he feels like they're interfering with his current case. Mm -hmm. And if they would just get the hell out of the way, he could solve this case very quickly. And uh, it pushes him to quite a few battles, including a gigantic one with the sheriff, with his command staff while he's also battling the suspects and trying to get that figured out. So it's a murder mystery, but it's also, I think, a look into kind of the chronic PTSD that most law enforcement officers have because there are always cases that nag at you, whether they're resolved or not. There are always cases that nag at you and that inform how you do later work for good or bad. So it's at least as much about his mental baggage as it is figuring out who killed the new girl. And some poor leadership, it sounds like. Yes. Do you have people ask you, is that so-and-so in this book? Oh, yeah. Is that supposed to be so? Yeah. Yeah. Yep. And the answer is always no, even if yep. deep, deep. Deep, dark, deep, dark secret once <laughs> in a while, the answer is actually yes. Always no. I don't know <laughs> what you're talking about. The answer is always no. 
if you see that in that character, then I must have done some good writing. Yeah, it's not intentional. <laughs> exactly. Um, uh, <laughs> and all writers are liars. You need to remember that. And then uh, the other one was, uh, was, hey, I got a good idea for you. Oh, that, my gosh. Yeah. The ideas that they give you are, are you like, I, that's okay, that's number 987 on my list of ideas. I'll get to it if I can. Uh, or, or are they more like moments, little comments, but not full fledged, like book ideas? Uh, rarely do I get an entire idea. Somebody will say, Hey, you should do a story about a, a detective who rides motorcycles. Uh, okay. Okay. I'll, <laughs> I'll, I'll get to that when I have time. And that's the, you know, the extent of the idea. Um, yeah. but good lines happen all the time. And, and, uh, all my guys, you know, there are 40 people in my department, very small, all the guys, everybody who works there, civilian, sworn, whatever, knows that Trey writes. And if you're talking to Trey and he suddenly freezes up, he's probably committing to memory whatever goofy line it was you just said. <laughs> they all know. They're all fine with that, you know. <laughs> so the new book is The Unknowing. It'll be out in October from Down Out Books. It's uh, Trey R. Barker's latest and uh, I really appreciate you coming on the show, Trey. It's been great to talk to you. It has been great fun. Thank you for having me. Call me anytime. Stay safe, brother. Have a good day. Well, there you are, folks. Uh, pretty interesting guy, uh, Trey Barker. Uh, really nice guy. really enjoyed the time I was able to spend with him. I was disappointed to learn he's not going to be able to make it to BoucherCon uh, this year in October. So uh, I hope to catch up with him sooner rather than later. Uh, he's a, a gritty writer and, uh, you can definitely see the journalistic training behind his work. So definitely check out what he's got going on. Next episode will be an open and shut conversation with Ann Simas, a fellow Oregonian author who's got several ser different series. Uh, and we'll be discussing one of her standalones as well, uh, called Here and Gone. And next month's feature episode in October... Uh, will be Katrina McPherson, a Scottish-born uh, author with all the personality that you might expect. I caught up with Katrina to ask her a few questions for our Flash Forward segment, and here's what she had to say. Katrina McPherson, what city do you live in now? Outside of Davis, California. Who is your favorite writer? Living Stephen King of all time, Jane Austen. Favorite movie? Calamity Jane. Favorite television show? The Great British Bake Off. Do you have a nickname? No, I've got, I'm the youngest of four sisters. My four sisters are Sheila, Audrey, Wendy and Katrina, known in the family as Lala, Noddy, Wendy Poo and Katrina. They just <laughs> didn't, didn't care for me at all. What hobby do you have that has nothing to do with writing? Cooking. What is your favorite sport? Tennis. Who is your favorite musician? Stevie Wonder or The Clash. Your five-second advice to aspiring writers. Bum in seat, fingers on keyboard, keep going till the end. Where would you like to go that you've never been? Africa. Your favorite saying. The real quote is never sleep with anyone whose troubles are worse than your own. But I misread it as never sleep with anyone whose trousers are worse than your own. And I think that's best advice. <laughs> well, then there you are. <laughs> So there you are, folks. Uh, one quick minute or so with Katrina McPherson. I'm really looking forward to interviewing her. Uh, 
pretty funny, <laughs> pretty, pretty hilarious, actually. Uh, so that'll be in the middle of October. Next episode is Anne Simos. And I got to tell you, um, it feels good to be back behind the microphone again. I want to thank Trey for coming on the show, uh, Down and Out Books, for being the sponsor for yet another season. Thanks to Christy for making a recommendation. I hope some of you out there will jump in and uh, share your book recommendations as well. Uh, and, I, and I also want to say thank you to all you listeners out there. I really appreciate the fact that you listen to this podcast and make it part of your week. If it weren't for you, there'd be no reason to do this podcast. I'd just uh, get on the phone and talk to my friends. So thanks for being there. I appreciate it. Until next time, this is Frank Zafiro reminding you that sometimes you got to be in the wrong place to write crime.